Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Black Mask. Jet Li is a super soldier Kato lookalike in Hong Kong's superhero actioner Black Mask from director Daniel Lee and producer Choi Hak. My name is Kennedy and with me is a very special guest, uh, a man who decided a filmography that is added upon by the hour is something that needs to be explored in full and he's continually doing so in his podcast Atkins Undisputed. You all hopefully know who I'm talking about, and it is none other than the voice of that podcast, Michael Scott. Welcome, buddy. Hi, Kenny. So uh, I'm so happy to be here, man. I, uh, I I cannot lie. I've told you this before, but for your listeners, you know, Podcast on Fire was absolutely a massive inspiration on me for doing Adkins Undisputed, and so it's a little, I'm a little bit, a uh, little bit starstruck to be actually on podcast on fire here. we're talking movies we like movies there's no there's no levels here in terms of oh i look up to you i'll uh, you know we're all in the same wavelength and hey if you were uh, inspired by our uh, series on actors the thing we didn't do that you did we did selective uh, selected movies right we picked nine maybe you're doing an entire filmography that is ongoing scott atkins isn't retired Retired or retiring, you you dedicate yourself in a way different way that I simply don't have time to do. So you've stepped it up. So if anyone should be starstruck, it should be me. <laughs> well, I think we can just agree that uh, that there is mutual respect uh, both ways between us, and and I'm just I'm I'm super happy to be here. That's really what it all boils down to. I I'm so excited to be here. And Michael was kind enough to invite me on his show when we talked the, uh, the I suppose Hong Kong China production at least uh, China uh, it was uh, shot in China uh, and was a Hong Kong martial arts movie called Extreme Crisis, which if I remember correctly was literally Scott Atkins' first on-screen movie appearance, uh, despite being a very very short role. But that um, was a very kind of you to invite me on to that show because I. As bad as, as Extreme Crisis is in sports, it's very much not bad in other sports. It actually is quite um, underrated in certain sports, but you have to work your way through a lot of B to even um, C grade movie stuff to get to some creative uh, fighting stuff. And uh, Scott Atkins, uh, you know, b- beginnings are important, and that is a beginning of sorts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and the reason I wanted you on is because for those who don't know, and it's I don't want to correct you, but it's extreme challenge. Not extreme. Oh, OK, extreme crisis or extreme challenge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, it is also directed by the great uh, Stephen Tung Wei. And I knew that you were of all the people that I knew you were the best person in, to come on and, and help me talk about his career and, and stuff like that. So if people haven't seen extreme challenge, yeah, it's not great, but there is some great stuff in it. Uh, and so I do think it is worth seeing, uh, at least once. Um, I've seen it a couple of times, of course, because that's what I do, but no, and it was great to have you on. We had a really good chat. Uh, so, you know, if people don't know where to start on Adkins Undisputed, that's a great episode to start with. 
Excellent. Well, we will um, let you uh, share some more details about uh, the conception and uh, what is uh, going on currently and how it's uh, evolved and so forth in a little bit. But first, uh, we'll do some uh, contact information. And this is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. And this show that covers Hong Kong cinema new and old uh, is available on podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows on, among other things, uh, Korean cinema, Taiwanese cinema, sleazy cinema. We have uh, commentaries every now and again and a bonus episode archive. That's uh, quite fun to uh, peruse as well. If you have any questions or feedback, uh, let us know. What did you think of Black Mask? Uh, if you saw it back in the day or somewhat recently, uh, let us know. Podcast on fire at googlemail.com and uh, you can join a discussion on the same uh, theme. Uh, I'm sure when I plug this episode, I'm going to ask you, what did you think of Black Mask? And uh, we'll do that on the Facebook group that is called Podcast on Fire Network. So join the discussion and uh, share your thoughts. Uh, and uh, you can also reach us on Twitter. We're at Podcast on Fire. I review a variety of Taiwanese and Hong Kong movies on my website, SoGoodReviews.com. And my tweets can be found at at so good reviews and you can and of course so uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on fire network and specific specific shows on uh, itunes so find us uh, over there or slash apple podcasts of course as well as stitcher radio spotify or wherever you find podcasts so we are going to hand it over to you for a plug we're going to get uh, to some uh, more details about uh, your show in a little bit after that so first of all where can people find atkins undisputed so you can find atkins undisputed on twitter at Adkins undis or at Adkins podcast. You can find the podcast anywhere podcasts are found. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, all of that. Uh, you can follow me personally at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and Letterbox. The easiest way to find all of it is to just go to Linktree slash Adkins Undisputed Pod, and that will give you links to everywhere that uh, I am. Let's do a little rundown of what's to come here in the show on Black Mask, even though it's one movie, we'll still have a couple of sections here. Uh, first, we'll talk a little bit with Michael about his podcast, how it came about and where he's at now with it. We'll then do a Black Mask background section that include notes or includes notes on its box office performance in Hong Kong and abroad. We'll give you a little oral uh, glimpse of what the extended Taiwanese version film uh, of the film is like, meaning that we'll we'll mention some basic differences and what is extended in that version of the film because uh, we can't go through it all whilst we're not uh, visualizing it. So uh, we're obviously not gonna. Uh, talk about uh, there's one second shot, uh, one second additional shot in the Taiwanese version at the uh, 43 34 second mark. Like, we're not going to be that specific, but uh, the Taiwanese version of the film was notorious for many years because um, it, was kind of, it was kind of a better way to view the movie, believe it or not. We'll get to that, and uh, then uh, we all conclude this episode uh, by reviewing the film Black Mask. But uh, first of all, because I'm curious and uh, I might not have heard this story fully before uh, in terms of uh, how the podcast got off the ground the Atkins Undisputed one so it's it's obviously based on such a dedicated and diligent and prolific work uh, and uh, working action actor Scott Atkins so, so obviously you must have been in the fandom camp uh, for a little while but what made you want to put all that on record and to boot make it a complete coverage of his ongoing catalog. I kind of assume you're going to go through it all or maybe set an ending point. But uh, regardless, uh, uh, what was the process going from fan to record as a fan? I first discovered Scott Adkins uh, back about 2007 when I saw a movie called Undisputed 2. And I won't go into the whole history uh, of that, but he blew me away. And, and over the years, 
I've constantly watched his movies. And a couple of years ago, I finally came to, I guess, the the realization or the acceptance that this guy's my favorite actor. Hmm. You know, when people talk about their favorite actors, they always they, they want to throw out the Nicholson's or the Pacino's or the the Tony Lungs or the Chow Yun Fats or the whoever. I finally was just like, no, this is the only actor that I watch his movies day one. They get released and I have for years. This guy is clearly my favorite actor. And then I started thinking about all the ways that his career has intersected with modern action cinema, you know, starting in Hong Kong, starting from his very first movie, working with Stephen Tung Wei, and then going on to work with Jackie Chan and and people like that. And I realized that basically all action cinema from the last 20 years runs through Scott Adkins. He's worked with pretty much everybody. If you name an action star or an action director or a choreographer, he's pretty much worked with them. So then I just started formulating this idea of how do I pull all of this together? And and again, I, I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. Your show, the 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 research and the the context that you provide to podcast on fire was very, very influential on me because I didn't want to just do something where I just brought somebody on and we just talked about the movie and we just talked about how much we love Scott Adkins. I wanted to really bring a sort of academic angle to this to basically outline why this guy is important and why this guy's filmography matters. Uh, and so then uh, I had had that idea percolating a bit. And then one night after one or two too many whiskeys, <laughs> I threw a tweet out that said, might fuck around and start a podcast about Scott Adkins. What do you guys think? And it blew up. Uh, I just, I had so many people tell me to do it. And so like at that point I was like, well, shit, I guess I'm locked into this. So I started putting it together. It dropped first episode dropped the first of October of, uh, of 2020. I'm now more than halfway through his filmography. So that is the thing. There is an endpoint endpoint with an asterisk to the show, which at this point will be max cloud. Uh, but I will actually keep the feed alive. And anytime he has a new movie, I will continue to do new episodes uh, anytime he has a new movie. Which is uh, on a um, uh, on a good month, uh, or, or let's say during a six-month span, you can pretty much expect one or maybe two, maybe three movies dropped because it's, he, he appears in movies that are able to um, get done quickly. And it seems like they, he's not bothered, and no one else is bothered that uh, he's on the market like two or three times a year in terms of new movies. Um, probably the pandemic has made that a little bit difficult, but I, but I expect the prolif- prolific nature of him to continue. And as an external fan who hasn't dealt uh, deep enough, and that's my fault, I've always re- re- admired that work ethic um, because that, that also includes... Uh, challenging yourself and evolving yourself. I never got the impression that Scott Atkins is uh, sort of idle and coasting by now, but uh, he wants to be better and get better. So, And that means doing it and not just uh, every now and again. Yeah, a perfect example is uh, the movie that he just finished shooting is called One Shot, directed by uh, the great James Nunn. 
it's a one take action movie, you know, like 1917 type thing. But they are actually trying to even push, you know, anybody knows a one take action movie isn't truly one take. There's digital cuts in there, but they are trying to push the length of the takes uh, as long as they can. Um, I haven't seen any footage from it yet or anything, but I'm I'm incredibly excited. And it's not the type of thing that you're going to see some other action stars, <clears throat> Steven Seagal, uh, you know, trying <laughs> to pull off at this point in their career. But they, you, you mentioned Undisputed uh, 2 specifically. Uh, what, what was it in short about that that made sort of you snap into some sort of clarity that this is a talent and then some, this is someone I now regard as a favorite I'm going to pursue and <laughs> try and make it my favorite. I mean, I know the Undisputed series is very well regarded, but what what was it you think that just made you go, that's my guy? Is it a mixture of action performance or, or is there an acting component too that you're connected to? So it started just as action performance, essentially, although his character that he plays in the Undisputed series, Boyka, is, is an incredibly charismatic and dynamic character. But... Uh, you know, I have a nickname for him. I call him the human special effect. And, and I was seeing things from him without wire assistance that I had never seen martial artists do before. Uh, it, it's a lot more common now. You know, now there's this whole element of martial arts tricking where you have all these martial artists who that's what they try and do. They try and get as much air and do as many, you know, flying kicks and spin kicks and stuff like that. But I had never seen it in the mid to late 2000s until I saw Scott Adkins do it. And anytime, you know, when you're a big action guy like I am and you grew up watching, you know, you started with your Van, your Bruce Lee's and then your Van Damme's. But then you discovered Hong Kong cinema and your Jet Li's and your Jackie Chan's and, and everybody that we all love and all your listeners love. When you see somebody doing something you've never seen before. That makes you sit the fuck up, mm -hmm. right? Like that makes you take notice. He was an actor that I physically was doing things that I had never seen before. And then as I delved more into his career and followed his career and watched him evolve as an actor in a way that a lot of action stars never do. And and going back and learning his history, realizing he went to the Weber Douglas Academy, which is one of the best acting schools in all of England, and, and realizing that he considers himself an actor first. And an, he's an actor who likes to do action, not an action star who unfortunately sometimes is called upon to act. And that made him far more interesting to me uh, as somebody that I think is worth studying because we don't necessarily have a ton of people who can do physically what he does while also being able to deliver on the drama or the comedy or the things, you know, and he'll tell you he's not, he's still not the best actor in the world. He's always trying to improve himself and everything like that. But when you compare him to some of his contemporaries, there's just no contest. The guy is far more interesting and far more talented than than just about anybody else out there. I remember watching, uh, or I believe it's one of the, and you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, one of the Isaac Florentine movies uh, that they did they did together. I mean, they've probably done half a dozen or more by this point. But there's a movie, it, it's a Special Forces, Super Forces, something Commandos. Special Forces. Okay, uh, I watched that, rented that, and I was really taken by it because by then I knew 
or Hong Kong cinema action beats and the rhythm and uh, and its structure. And that showed up in that movie in a really impressive way, which uh, hasn't made me, you know, examine his filmography in the way you have. But that that, that was an early impressive experience because not a lot of western filmmakers got the hong kong style right they were one of the few back in the day anyway that seriously understood the hong kong style and how to shoot it technically and uh, that uh, that that lingered uh, for sure and i hope that movie holds up still but, but um i'm thinking that action style never really goes out of style you just have to do it well so i'm thinking that movie has not aged as a matter of fact uh, it, it hasn't. I, you know, I obviously rewatched it for the podcast. It, it, and that's not just Isaac Florentine on that one, but the stunts and the choreography are by Koichi Sakamoto's Alpha oh, Stunts. Oh, yeah, there we go. The Drive People. The Drive People. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and that's the thing is you've got all these people. It's so funny. So many people want to uh, downplay Power Rangers as kids programming and this whole thing. And you've got all these people making these amazing action movies who all cut their teeth on Power Rangers because that's where Florentine met Sakamoto. Alpha Stunts did a bunch of the stunts for Power Rangers. Florentine directed a crap ton of episodes and they all got together and they did special forces and they moved on to do other stuff. And and so it is one of those things where there is all these there's this whole world of action cinema here in the West that's kind of under the surface. You know, you get your Bournes and even your John Wicks, but even with like the John Wicks, all the 8711 guys, they all came up at the same time too. And so there's this whole world of DTV action that is being done that is seriously kind of as close. It, it, it still doesn't have that unhinged, unbridled joy that 80s and 90s Hong Kong cinema does. But it is the closest I have sort of found that has been able to keep it at a fairly sustained level. Because even when something like like Thailand or Indonesia, they start having their sort of Hong Kong renaissances, they don't they don't really seem to last as long. Or like Korea, they go in a very different direction. You know, Korean cinema has gone in a very different direction than what Hong Kong did, even though early Korean new wave movies like Shiri were very much trying to ape Hong Kong styles. Modern Korean cinema doesn't look anything like that. But DTV action in the West really is keeping that that sort of torch alive. And you know, if your fandom wasn't enough, you also got the man on board to sprinkle some notes and commentary about his experiences uh, working on the films they picked for your particular podcast episode. So uh, we, we've established that uh, he's happy to talk about uh, his films. He's the first one to say that uh, that one didn't work out as well as uh, that one worked out. I'm more proud of that film. That film didn't pan out as much. So that, I'm saying that because that is my question to you. My question is, what, what impressions, uh, other, other than all that, has the man left on you in your one-on-one conversations? He's one of us. First and foremost, that was the thing. He is a fan. He, so he and I are actually currently in the middle of doing a, a series where we are talking about what we think are the five greatest action stars of all time. Because uh, he's also very humble. So he's he's gotten a little bit uh, done with talking about himself. And so he actually pitched this idea to do this series to me. And what I've realized more than anything is he is 
in spite of all his physical abilities, in spite of all his success, he is one of us. He is a fan, first and foremost, of action cinema. You you get him talking about Jean-Claude Van Damme, who he has worked with, you know, or you get him talking about Bruce Lee. Uh, and he sounds just like I do. Uh, and, and the other thing is, is like I mentioned that he's humble, but also he's just a guy that likes to work. You know, I, I've had some people say, well, don't you think he makes too many movies? And I'm like, I guess, but I don't think he'd say that because he just likes to work. He's an actor. He wants to work. What else is he going to be doing? Staying home and, you know, playing Xbox? Like, he'd rather be out on a film set filming a movie. Which is really a different, um, it's a different mindset versus, I got to get out there and make money desperately. You know, You know what I mean? Like, out of all actors I'm thinking of, when you're talking about that is um i remember an interview with harrison ford where he he said you know he's old now but uh he said uh, you know i like working that's where i that's where i enjoy myself the most so that, that that's what i'm gonna do it doesn't really matter if i have all the money in the world uh, and all those franchises i like to work and it was that simple like it's not um he's not trying to pay off uh his uh, his boats or his mortgages or whatever, and uh, it's it's about that kind of joy of working for for better or worse, uh, what's and all the the joy of uh, going into uh, going into work, and I'm sure Scott feels absolutely the same way. And he, as an external observer, that never struck me that uh, he's um, he's sort of oversaturating the market or anything. I just got the impression that this is. Um, uh, it's part of his evolving journey and there, there's development to be had making this many movies because they, he, I never got the impression he's making the same goddamn movie every time. But if you look at the genres and uh, the the setups, it's certainly not like, oh yeah, Undisputed 18 and Death Collector 40. Like, like it's not. Uh, it, there, there's a versatility there, even if it's rooted in action, and um, um, those are the types of people that um, my my eyebrow sort of goes up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Like the the, the actor that I compare him to, because I saw I remember years ago seeing an interview with Christopher Walken, and somebody asked him, you know, you're in a lot of bad movies, and Walken was just like, and I'm going to spare everybody from doing a bad accent, but. You know, he was just like, I like to work. I'm an actor. I get bored if I'm not on a movie set. I want to be on a movie set. It's what I do. So even if the movie's not that great, if it gives me something interesting to tie into or I can figure out some way to do something to keep myself entertained, I'm going to do it. And, and you know, and you contrast that to, say, somebody like Bruce Willis, who is taking two million dollars to sit in a chair for five minutes in a movie. You know, I, I mean, I think that the, the contrast is pretty stark between actors who love to act and actors who just want to get paid. Uh, have they crossed paths in their respective filmographies, Willis and Atkins, by this point? Technically, yes, in Expendables 2, though they did not share any scenes together, but they are both in Expendables 2 together. Yeah, yeah, Willis is a good example where you definitely see that uh, his heart is not into this, um, and uh, but but some part of him needs to work, not due to finances. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure he's fine, uh, but um, I don't know. The, it it doesn't come off as uh, sincere. That's for sure. Atkins's work does come off as uh, sincere, and uh, it it has a drive and meaning uh, to it. 
that's great insight let's uh, do a music break and then uh, we'll uh, transition into our section on black mask from 1996 uh, a movie scott atkins isn't in but uh, at the end of the, of the episode well, well i could have invited you to talk this movie anyway i didn't need to have a scott atkins connection but the black mask films does have a scott atkins connection and uh, we'll get to uh, that at the end of the show so uh, th- that all means we're going to keep you here for two episodes as a matter of fact but first of all black mask from 1996 uh, coming up and uh, we're going to play some music probably not from the hip-hop soundtrack but uh, from the original version of black mask and uh, we'll be right back And welcome back and the review for this episode is, as I said, Black Mask from 1996 and plot from my review of the film goes as follows. Squad 701 consisted of a number of engineered super soldiers uh, with uh, no ability to feel pain. In order to achieve that, their nerves uh, were removed, something which is in the long run caused problems and the project was terminated along with the team of soldiers. There were a few subjects, however, who managed to escape. One of them is uh, Choi Chik, played by Jet Li. He keeps a low profile working as a librarian but is forced into action when it is discovered that the other remaining members of Squad 701 are killing off drug dealers in order to conquer that market themselves. So some background notes on the movie. This was released on November 9th in 1996 in Hong Kong. And of course, uh, this was a busy year for Jet Li, uh, playing legendary myth, uh, uh, mythological uh, kung fu heroes. Uh, that was quite a profile he had in the 90s, but we saw a change of pace here as he takes on the role of an action superhero. Uh, it's based on a Chinese comic, Black Mask, by uh, author Li Chi Tuck. Uh, the film's uh, designers also weaved in an homage to Bruce Lee as uh, Jet Li's mask and uh, uh, chauffeur cap bears a striking resemblance to the costume design of bruce lee's character of uh, kato in the u.s uh, tv series uh, it, it wasn't um in the subtitles we had but uh, maybe in another translation in, in the news report that happens in the film kato is mentioned unless i missed it in our translation when they do the news report they compare they compare him to batman so uh that might be from some original translation or maybe even from from an English dub of sorts, but uh, I, I think it's in. I don't remember, but I do think it's in the English, the the U.S. English dub. Uh, but I, I could be wrong because I, I didn't really pay attention when I was rewatching that part for that scene. But I think that's probably where it comes from. That's for sure. Uh, its local box office was thirteen point two million Hong Kong dollars, which really didn't scream hit status in nineteen ninety six. Moderate success, perhaps, but it didn't crack the top ten in a year where the Jackie Chan movie First Strike was number one in Hong Kong with 57 million followed by two Stephen Chow vehicles God of Cookery and Forbidden City Cop each respectively earning 40 and 36 million and 10th spot was occupied by Young and Dangerous Free at 19 million again Black Mask made 13.2 so maybe top 20 
but and uh, and and also in terms of Young and Dangerous, uh, that that was the year when all of those movies were out the same year. Those first three, so the preceding two movies in that um, series, uh, Young and Dangerous one and two, were in the top ten uh, at a twenty million uh, Hong Kong dollar uh, take, uh, respectively. So it kind of it, it decreased by each. Uh, Pot in uh, uh, in that series, Young and Dangerous. Young and Dangerous four was lower, five was lower, and six was lower, the lowest. A nineties Hong Kong action film such as this expectedly has a chance to matter on the foreign market. So this went on export, uh, both in aberration territories, of course, uh, like Taiwan, but also to English language territories. And the export version uh, that was first put out wasn't as high profile as the american re-release handled by artisan entertainment in america so it was dubbed in one way and then released but then when artisan decided to re-release it they made a new dub they made narrative edits to the film and they also replaced the original score with a hip-hop themed soundtrack it reportedly does feature some exclusive scenes and shots but i'm not too sure about that and on on the upside versus the hong kong movie uh, the hong kong version at the time this one had uncut gore sequences, uh, uncut blood scrapes and so forth. Uh, and, you know, it did well, well enough. It eventually went on to make 12 million Hong Kong US dollars at the box, 12 million US dollars at the box office and DVD sales came close to 50 million. And I'm mentioning those numbers, uh, but I can't really say for sure if it's good or not for home video. It sounds like a lot. Uh, and the cinema earnings, I have a feeling, are respectable for a re-release uh, rather than it, you know, it wasn't an American film by a Hong Kong director. I know you rewatched that version. I didn't because I don't have access to it uh, on disc. Uh, so is there anything you, you want to say personally about uh, the Artisan uh, Entertainment uh, release or do you want to save it for, for the review? I, there's some things I do want to save for the review. What I'm going to quickly say is... I remembered the hip hop soundtrack being very generic and it kind of is, but I, I'm not going to lie. I came around on the new hip hop soundtrack. I, I think it is superior. I'll talk about why when we get into the review. What I do want to say, the most important thing is that Ken, you and I grew up watching a lot of dubbed movies. This might be the single worst dub really? I have ever heard in my life. Is it just dull or poorly performed or way over the top or what's the problem with it dull dull everybody everybody sounds like they just woke up i actually i <laughs> i played a little bit for my wife my wife's a big jet lee fan but she wasn't able to rewatch this with me and i'm actually really glad because we were gonna watch the 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 u.s the artisan version and i played a little bit for her and she's like it sounds like a meditation program or like an audio <laughs> wow and and it's especially terrible because, you know, this came out in the U.S. and I want to say 2002. At this point, we were using Jackie Chan to redub his own movies. And we already this came out after Romeo Must Die. We knew Jet Li could speak English and we knew what Jet Li sounded like. And so they they have these not only is it flat, but nobody sounds like they're supposed to. And I know even in the original, it's not Jet Li's actual voice, but the the, the dubbing is just it's flat and it's bland. It lacks 
the oomph of, you know, some of you take your old Shaw Brothers dubs and stuff that everybody likes to make fun of. But at least those are enthusiastic. Right. It's like this one. They're so afraid of being that that they go completely the other way. And everybody just talks like this for the whole movie. And like, it's a lively movie. It's not this uh, contemplative art house movie. <laughs> no, it's an energetic movie. The only voice that has any life to it is the girl dubbing Karen Mock, which is extra unfortunate. I'll save that for the review because I do have some things I want to say about how Karen Mock is treated in this movie. Uh, let's just say her dub just exacerbates all the things that I, I dislike about her role in this movie. I, I, I kind of assume she says yippee at one point. It just seems very suitable for the character. Yippee! Uh, I... I <laughs> Pretty sure she actually does when she's playing the video game. I, I feel like I, I can't I can't exactly remember, but yeah. Um, so what I will say is I actually think the hip hop soundtrack is better, but the dub is so, so vastly worse uh, that if you have a choice of not watching this one, I, I would lose the soundtrack to not have to put up with that dub. I think the original dialogue with the hip hop soundtrack might actually be the ideal, but, uh, you know, it might work versus the job they did on Supercop with Supercop. It was kind of, let's just insert all the, the modern artists of the time in silly places. You know, uh, there's a scene in Supercop, police story free Supercop where they're, trying to find Jackie's uh, hometown, his village. And Jackie doesn't know uh, where, and they're looking, they're looking, and they're playing something on the radio. In the original version, it's a suitable choice, I suppose. And in the new version, there's, you know, who knows, maybe it's uh, what's love got to do with it at that point on the radio. And it feels so unnatural. Uh, Just uh, insert it here, here, here. But if you make it a little bit more anonymous and... uh, generic i suppose and just don't let it be front and center uh but but they did that to sell to sell cds and uh, i think the super cop soundtrack actually did well as a matter of fact so you know who who am i to say what is right or wrong and that's actually what they do here because it's an actual hip-hop score and so the the not just the songs the songs are actually relatively unobtrusive there's only a few most of it is just a score and it really actually kind of sounds like an Eric Serra score. Like I kept thinking of Eric Serra's score from the fifth element is, is what it kind of sounds like uh, contrasted to the James Bond knockoff score that we get from the original version. I think it hits different. I think it's more interesting. Uh, it's not exceptional. Don't get me wrong. It's not going to blow you away. And, and there's definitely some scenes where they use it and it doesn't work. Uh, but all of that is for naught because the dub is so unbelievably horrendous and so absolutely god awful that it negates anything else. The the artisan version may do well. It, it just I can't ever in good conscience recommend watching the artisan version because the dub is just so unbelievably bad. Going back to some specifics of uh, the original movie, this was produced by Choi Hak, but directed by Daniel Lee, who had helmed 1994's What Price Survival, a loosely, very loosely connected one on swordsman reimagining, but transferred to a slightly modern era where it was sort of 1930s, 1940s. And uh, I quite liked the movie. Uh, It's it certainly, you know, not, not to spoil it, but any sign of the, the one on swordsman angle. Uh, it's reserved for the latter stages of the movie. 
to the point where, oh, okay, that connects to that old movie. Otherwise, there's nothing to suggest that uh, the riffing of the uh, Chang-Chi movie from uh, from 1967. A, a mix of the dramatic and action followed for director Daniel Lee uh, after Black Mask with uh, my favorite movie of his, uh, the harrowing divorce drama Till Death Do Us Part. Quite a highlight. Uh, he didn't always handle drama and melodrama well. There's an Andy Lau picture called The Fighter's Blues. That it, It's okay, but it, it goes off the rails in terms of melodrama points. Uh, the New Millennium has seen Daniel Lee in action territory uh, mainly, uh, helming 2005's Dragon Squad, co-produced by Steven Seagal and featuring Michael Bean, along with uh, Simon Yam, Sa- Summer Hong, Maggie Q, etc., uh, he did 14 Blades with Donnie Yen, Dragon Blade with Jackie Chan, John Cusack, and Adrian Brody, and 2019's The Climbers, starring Wu Jing, and I think Jackie Chan has a smaller appearance um, in that movie. He's further down the cast list, so um, maybe he's not even on the mountain in that one. I haven't seen it. <laughs> Uh, and and that indeed means that Daniel is working on the mainland uh, currently. And I'll admit that I fell off uh, around the early 2000s uh, in terms of uh, following the output, and I haven't caught up uh, since. But uh, his uh, his dramatic uh, instincts they weren't bad at all. Uh, Till Death Do Us Part is um, it's a difficult film, but uh, man, is it good? It stars uh, Anita Yun from Celavi Moncherie, co-starring Francis M as. Um, a lawyer of sorts and uh, yeah it's um, it's a tough watch um, but it's certainly accomplished and nice to see an action director feeling comfortable in um, in a dramatic uh, in a dramatic uh, movie can i can i ask you really quick kenny did you ever see his three kingdoms i did not that's the samo uh or is it samo hong uh, andy lao andy movie yeah. yeah i did not i mean it's andy lao so i could watch it uh, without feeling uh discomfort to anything but was it any good if you did so you did see it yourself yeah i did it, it actually is i you know i i kind of think daniel lee's one of those guys who's just really a um he's a good workman like director right he's not necessarily gonna blow you away but he's also not incompetent uh which is is always nice i i liked it the biggest problem with it is it's not redcliffe uh you know when it came out the same year as redcliffe uh but i think there is there is value in it. Andy Lau is is very entertaining and very good in it. Um, it's certainly, I think, better contrasting some of the. I haven't seen the climbers either. Unfortunately, I I feel like a bad fan, bad Wu Jing fan for not having seen that one yet. Um, I think Three Kingdoms is definitely better than Fourteen Blades. Uh, as much as I love Donnie, and I also have to just shout out a little bit. I kind of love Dragon Blade. Adrian Brody is doing a thing in Dragon Blade. Yeah, and he's just going so over the top. And uh, and it uh, would be hard-pressed to call it a good movie. But uh, I, I certainly enjoy watching it. Uh, so I just, I have not seen Till Death Do Us Part, so I can't comment on him actually handling a serious melodrama. But I do think his glossy stuff that he's been doing lately is uh, functional. At, at, at the worst. Black Mask was nominated for three Hong Kong Film Awards, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, and Best Action Design, uh, courtesy of uh, Yoon Ping. It lost in all categories. Uh, the chief winner that year was Peter Chan's uh, romance, classic romance, Comrades Almost a Love Story, starring Leon Lai and Maggie Chung, as it took home statuettes in the categories of Best Picture, Director, Actress, Supporting Actor for Eric Tsang, and Best Screenplay. 
Uh, and it, it, it's a classic movie now out on uh, Blu-ray as well. Uh, it was out of uh, circulation for a bit. Uh, so going back to Black, Black Mask and sort of uh, the differences between versions. I, I don't want to do an entire breakdown of the differences in the Hong Kong version of Black Mask versus the Taiwanese version. Because that requires visuals. And there are websites for that. So I'm going to try and link uh, link to those. But at its core, we first have to mention the original Hong Kong version. Probably rated Category 2B. Had about 40 or 50 seconds of violence cut from it. Versus the Taiwanese version. Uh, there are various snippets of gory violence. These uh, inserts of scripts uh, blowing. And, uh, and uh, most action scenes had that removed uh, you know impact hits and general blood flow it might have but i'm not too sure in uh, in actuality it might have propelled this jet Li vehicle to a category 3 rating but it's not um, it's not nasty violence necessarily so i don't know they just felt like they, they, this doesn't belong in category 2b uh, this time around but these censored parts remain present in the taiwanese version and the various international versions including the artisan entertainment version they, they, they were all working from an uncensored print and many looked for the Taiwanese version for their uncut experience plus some extended uh, footage. Uh, but a good choice at the time was also the French DVD as that was the uncensored Hong Kong version. So it didn't have the Taiwanese exclusives. Uh, but it didn't have any English subtitles either being a French DVD. Uh, when the remastered Hong Kong DVD came out a fair few years ago now, it was still the censored theatrical version. But uh, I, I think like the opening blood spurt from, from the neck uh, as you see in the, uh, in the opening crawl. I noticed that was ever so slightly longer on the newer DVD, so there was always that. And and there was some extra info in the opening text crawl as well in the remastered Hong Kong DVD that was on the Taiwanese version too. They were talking about why the experiments went wrong, and that was for some reason not as present on the older Hong Kong DVD. Then if we were to mention some of the basic additions to the Taiwanese version and uh, longer versions in Taiwan it was not uncommon at the time as uh, sometimes films opened there before and uh, judging by response of, of, of the audience or maybe the director watching uh, his or her own movie they made further trims to uh, to the Hong Kong version and then released it uh, there so uh, we're talking uncensored gore in the Taiwanese version plus about 100 seconds to 2 minutes of exclusive material to the Taiwanese version in terms of extra scenes or extended scenes and this includes dialogue between Karen Mock's character and the librarians at the beginning. Uh, Anthony Wong's uh, drug dealer King Kao has his way with a woman and he's in his lair by shooting a squirt gun at her and uh, Lao Ching Wan and Anthony Wong has uh, a little exchange when they meet after that scene using hand gestures and uh, probably the main thing that people like, at least I liked it, is that there's an extra carnage at uh, the hospital where the co- where, where the sort of zombie killer has, <laughs> is awakened and the cops have their arms twisted off and uh, they try to shoot that zombie killer and uh, there's some blood squibs on his head that go off and that, that's in the Ta- Taiwanese version. Uh, yeah, so that's a lot of fun to have. I will explain where you can get all this because nowadays you can get you know, every version you want essentially is out there on the marketplace, including the extended uh, Taiwanese version. But we'll get to that. So we're going to transition into the review stage. So what we do on this show, Michael, if you don't remember, uh, we do a little short opinion, uh, first of all. So I'll uh, I'll throw up mine uh, first. Uh, I often remember it as a somewhat slight, undemanding film. Uh, 
and and I understand that there's also sort of a general dissatisfaction of it in the fan community, but it moves and shakes like a 90s Hong Kong over-the-top action picture, and that's more than sufficient in my book, yeah. Plus you have some cool added stylization that wasn't John Woo, it wasn't Triad, it wasn't old school, and, uh, you know, it, it, the rather bloody violence uh, makes me sort of sit comfortably and uh, watch it, and sometimes I sit up and go, whoa! So it's all acceptable to me, but uh, not any four out of five star material as such. But um, I, I I don't know about you, I, I got the general feeling that people don't really care for this movie, maybe in comparison to other Jet Li movies, uh, but... Uh, uh, so if you give us your opinion or if you have a if you have a take on that if you you because you you're on twitter you, you you've got the pulse of the fan community what what are they saying about black mask <laughs> uh yeah so first thing i do want to shout out you mentioned there's websites uh one if you haven't already got it i do want to encourage people to check out moviecensorship.com because they do breakdowns and they're they're a beautiful site the amount of work that they put into cataloging the differences is top notch um so i actually tweeted out that i was watching this and i i didn't get a lot of people telling me it sucked so i guess it's still got i mean i got a lot of people telling me it sucked because they knew i was watching the dubbed version and we all spent like two hours bitching about the artisan dubbed version but um so for me i probably first saw this i got the initial hong kong dvd i want to say in maybe 98 99 mm-hmm. i feel like and so that was the first way i saw it was the original hong kong the i think it was mia you said i can't remember if yeah, it was they, yeah they did one of those um it, it, it was the theatrical print with permanent subtitles uh, on it uh, back in the day that's the one i had and um i really remember being blown away back then but i also wasn't as well immersed in hong kong cinema this time going around i liked it less i still think it's a solidly entertaining movie i think daniel lee does a very good job and i'll make this quick because we're just doing a quick review daniel lee does a very good job yuan Wuping is just he's showing off like he does it's Jet Li at the height of his powers and i'll be honest i'm always gonna be a sucker for lao ching wan so it's it's hard for me to not at least find some joy, especially like badass tough guy Lao Ching Wan. You know, like uh, he, he had not yet become uh, taken on a silly comedic persona, which was a sort of thing for a while. Uh, this was uh, the copy era of Lao Ching Wan. Yeah, I still think it's a solid, solid movie. If, if people haven't seen it, it's well worth watching. Are you going to revisit it a ton? Is it going to change your life the way maybe like Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in China will, or Fist of Legend will, as far as Jet Li movies go? No, but it's worth a watch. And I wouldn't really be able to tell you or anyone if this is a good comic book movie or not, uh, because it's not. I can't gauge that because um, I don't know how to compare quality versus uh, in, in, in the written and illustrated form versus what ends up uh, in a movie. But but I like on a primal level that this exists as part of Jet's filmography. It it, it could be deemed uh, now in retrospect to um, be experimentation to a, to a degree. It isn't uh, fully molded uh, after his past uh, action roles. And uh, th- then we'll come back to that question uh, that we talked about in connection to Scott that you know, how do you forward your acting profile? How do you forward your uh, action profile? You try out um, something new, you know. And Black Mask, 
you, you might be able to slot that into there. This was uh, Jet Shine Out, uh, something new after playing the same kind of period martial arts hero for a number of films uh, in, in the 90s. So um, it, it, it's nice to have that in uh, retrospect. And, and sometimes this, uh, the, you know, the high-flying, fast-paced imagery in the 90s was as much comfort fodder as uh, these Jet Li movies showed as choreographed by Yung Wo-Ping or Ching Sudong. So, sometimes they were devoid of coherency, but the fast-paced, high-flying action design of the 90s, as fast as they were and sometimes as quickly cut as they were, this type of action design had some creative, unique, violent touches too. This shows up in Black Mask, and that's where I find comfort as well, making this an easy, um, easy watch uh, from the time. Well, and I was going to say, speaking, you know, speaking of Jet Li's career, this is, you know, I think the fr- if I remember correctly, this is the first movie he did because he signed that exclusive contract with Wong Jing to do four movies for Wong Jing that got us basically Kung Fu Cult Master, Last Hero in China, New Legend of Shaolin and High Risk, I think. And this was sort of the first when he was out of that contract and he was trying to, again, sort of he was trying all of this, all of these movies he made in the mid 90s. I kind of consider starting with Bodyguard from Beijing is him trying to establish himself as a legitimate action star in modern movies. Right. Because, you know, he breaks in. He does the he does the the born to defense and and those kind of movies and then he comes over to Hong Kong and he breaks in in Once Upon a Time in China and he's literally pegged doing just period pieces for a couple of years uh, and, and made like nine movies you want you think Scott Adkins works a lot <laughs> and Jet Li in the early nineties was insane. And so this is all him trying to experiment and establish that he can be a modern action star, too. You know, so we get things like High Risk, My Father is a Hero, Bodyguard from Beijing, this. And then, you know, he does Hitman and then comes to America. Uh, And so I do wonder if and I don't have any insight on this, but I do wonder if part of it was also paving the groundwork to come to America, like showing American studios that he can do modern action, not just be Wong Fei Hung, uh, so that he can then come and do Lethal Weapon 4 and Romeo Must Die and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were modern from this point on. Yeah, Yes, it went back to the Once Upon a Time in China uh, fold with uh, Once Upon a Time in China and America, but uh, really uh, that, that was largely... A thing of the past, and uh, and heck, you even got to hear his voice finally in Hitman, <laughs> you know. So, uh, uh, which you did for once upon a time in China and America, admittedly, also, but only on the Mandarin track in Hitman. I believe uh, he tried his uh, uh, tried his best to speak Cantonese and sing sound. So that was a way of showing the world that uh, this is what I sound like as well. Yeah, and well, and even. Um... You you start noticing, too, in some of these, I, I'm thinking in particular of Dr. Y, which was also weirdly both a period piece and a modern piece, right? Yep. But you see it a lot in Black Mass, too, especially his scenes on the library, his scenes with Karen Mock. You're starting to see so much of the criticism of Jet Li in his early career was he's a stone face. He's stoic. He's got no range. 
And that's just not true of Jet Li, right? Jet Li's freaking adorable. Like, he he has a smile that can light up an entire room. And you start seeing that in these movies as well, that he starts being more charming and romantic and funny and, and stuff like that to try and show his range and then using his own voice. I think all of it is really, truly... Yeah, kind of calculated to be able to pitch to American studios uh, at that point. It, it wasn't a bad run, I think, in Hollywood. Um, audiences did take him in and uh, notice that charm. And uh, I have my qualms about you know movies like Romeo Must Die, that it's not really that terribly special. But uh, as an introductory vehicle, if we discount Lethal Weapon 4, because it wasn't a lead role. It's not bad, I suppose. It's a good good intro. And then I remember him going on the talk show circuit and being super charming, uh, telling stories, but also performing martial arts. And uh, I think he broke like Howie Mandel's uh, talk show uh, furniture during his appearance for Lethal Weapon 4 or Romeo Must Die. It's still a Hong Kong movie. So that means uh, contrasts and tonal shifts, which is an element that I love and love depending on how it's handled or what the movie is like, uh, who is behind it. And what I'm talking about in terms of tonal shifts here is between that superhero comic book action, gloomy, industrial-looking, smoky-looking movie versus the comedic sections represented by Karen Mock's character, Tracy, who's unlucky in love and is very external about being distraught that the guy dumped me. Mopey, mopey, mopey. And... Okay, I love Karen Mock. I think she's a flawless actress. She can light up a room and light up a movie, even the crummiest of movies. This is not her. This is uh, someone directing her towards this characterization. I don't really like it one bit. I don't find it that charming to contrast it against the harder-edged material um, as such. Uh I could have done without it. It's a short movie, so you get through it. But uh, then to pair them up together and have her be part of the of the team in a way, it's a little. I don't find. I don't think they find a place for her here. It seems more like uh, a Wong Jing idea. He's not on this, but it seems like a Wong Jing idea, and I think it stands out a little too much. Uh, and that's saying something. In some Hong Kong movies, the, I, the dopiest shit ever versus violence is something I applaud. This is something I love. In this one, I don't think it fits tonally. And uh, such a flawless actress, she doesn't find a place being a ditzy, uh, ditzy character. you know. And she, she's MIA for large stretches for a while. And then Daniel Lee cuts back to, oh yeah, Karen was in this movie too. And and that's saying something. I didn't miss her when she was gone, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden she pops up again. But uh, you're used to Hong Kong cinema like this. But so how did it play uh, for you, the the contrast of uh, the hard-edged material versus Tracy's uh, love of woes, if you will? How dare this movie treat Karen Mock the way that it treats her? When I first saw this back, the very first time I saw it, I didn't really know who Karen Mock was. This was probably the very first movie that I ever saw her in. Since then, I'm with you. She is a flawless actress. She is stunning. She is absolutely beautiful. She is a brilliant, both comedic, dramatic, and action actress. 
same year as God of Cookery, where she's uh, uglied up with the with the teeth and all of that. So uh, it was a good year for her. And same year as Viva Erotica mm-hmm. as well. And and both of those movies are doing more with her and giving her more to work with. This, I think, her character is just absolutely terrible in this. I, some of the other comedy works a little bit, but I think her character is terrible, and and it's extra bad for me because it's Karen Mock. Uh, and, and that just that just makes me very angry. I think that's by far and away the worst part of the movie because I just I'm with you. You know, I I I love Hong Kong for its tonal shifts, uh, but I also hate it. And it's the most Wong Jing shit in this. And and you know, Kenny, I am no fan of Wong Jing. I have been very upfront on Twitter that I am. I do like some of his movies. There's plenty of movies he's made that I've liked, but by and large, I think he is the problem, not the solution when it comes to Hong Kong cinema. I, I can't really defend him because everything you're going to say, you're right. And much of the things you're going to say, uh, I like about him. That's exactly it. You know, it's like, and comedy is is subjective it's if it makes you laugh it makes you laugh and that is what it is nothing with her made me laugh the only thing involving any of her that made me laugh that i do want to call out is the it's and it's only in the taiwanese cut uh that we watched is the very start when he's in the library and all the other guys are trying to convince her that she should date him and she's like, does he gamble? And so they're trying to like tempt Jet Li into coming and playing Mahjong. And he's like, oh, how much can you win? And they're like, you know, three, four hundred dollars. And he just pulls out. He's like, well, here's three hundred dollars. Just pretend I showed up. <laughs> I, I thought that was delightful. like that was lovely. And it was such a good character piece for his character uh, for I keep wanting to call him Michael because that's what they call him in the, the U.S. Stuff, oh, but, really? Yeah. Uh, there was such a, a beautiful character piece for him. I really liked it. And and cutting it does kind of really hurt. It doesn't hurt his character, but it really hurts Karen Mock's character. Yeah, it's one of the longer stretches of new footage, to be honest. Uh, sometimes it's about a few seconds here and there. This uh, uh, early scene in the library is one of the sort of continual extended scenes. Um, it's but, solid 45 or 60 seconds. Like, yeah. it's a solid scene, yeah. Speaking of uh, where the sort of acting clicked, I, I do enjoy some of the interaction between Jet Li and Lao Ching Wan. The, the chess uh, match that they have, it's sort of their thing, the back and forth uh, where Chick is acting the timid, feeble uh, very well because he needs to play a persona. He can't give off that he's, you know, black mask or uh, cunning in any way versus the alpha male cop, Lao Ching Wan, trying to bring emotion out of him. I think it's fun. And he hits him at one point. And he said, why didn't you hit back? And he, uh, that, that's not in his persona. That And you, uh, you had a good reason for hitting me, I'm sure. <laughs> and I thought that was cute. Um, in all its dubbed, uh, uh, even dubbed Cantonese glory, if you will. I, I think that's uh, rather cute. And Lao Ching Wan is, you know, even a small appearance uh, or uh, a small appearance of uh, the acting prowess in an action piece, I think is uh, extremely uh, watchable. Daniel Lee, I wanted to mention some some notes here. I don't know if you've noticed this in your exploration of his filmography. He's uh, he's been a flashy, quick cutting director on on his own, and not just it's it isn't just like uh, the action design and the action director dictating this. I, I, I've seen this style show up in his 
movie. It's very loose style, sometimes handheld style. That, that could work to his advantage and that could work to his, to his disadvantage. In this one, I think, uh, in part, it doesn't. In certain parts, it seems to help the comic book aura, the over-stylized aura a little bit. Yes, you do have Choi Hak's eye on this as a producer, and I believe he's one of the writers. Uh, and it might not sound refined, Michael, when I say that uh, they create this style through fast cutting, tilting the camera, adding blue and purple in the frame. And, and that's the extent of the creativity rather than creative shots. Uh, but I think I, I like the style, the, 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 the visual style and the camera work adds decently to creating this uh, this world. Again, I can't judge at all if this is resembling either its source, its source material, or if it's resembling uh, superhero movies, comic book movies of the time really well or not. But um, I wanted to get your take if you think uh, the film's visual style aids in any way even though it's not terribly refined as such i think it works better than not for the most part because i think they do one incredibly smart thing and i too i have not read the original comic so i can't i can't say whether it replicates that at all what i can say is you know in terms of does Jet Li cut a lot of superhero poses Absolutely. Right. Like, does he look like a superhero in this movie? Absolutely. But I think the smart thing they do is the scenes during the day when he's not black black mask, they look fundamentally different than the action scenes when he is black mask. And I do like that. Like you said, it's not terribly refined. It's not terribly polished. Like if you compare what you see here versus a, a Choi Hak movie like Knockoff, which is all about j- just place the camera in impossible places and create camera moves that are impossible and just jazz this up. This doesn't really have that. Uh, so uh, regardless of, of how much Choi Hak was um, trying to get in the, into the director's chair in this one, because as producer, he tended to take over uh, sets, uh, regardless of if that happened or not. Uh, uh, this movie doesn't have that. It doesn't go for that huge experimentation a la knockoff for instance no it doesn't it it ends up looking more like i was thinking of bride with white hair too is is something that it kind of reminds me of where where again you're doing in post you're trying to make all this cool stuff happen in post rather than but i do like that that there is a fundamentally visual like a distinct visual between when he's in the mask and when he's out of the mask. And I, I did think that was kind of cool. I, I, I liked that there was they were at least able to establish, you know, like all the library scenes are very straightforward shots, very, you know, they're they're not under cranked or anything like that. Fairly bright lighting. And then when he becomes, you know, he puts on the mask and we get all these action scenes, we get a lot more under cranking, we get a lot more wonky camera angles done in post and and stuff like that i i liked that aspect of it i am with you i wish it had been a little more refined i wish it had been well i mean even though i've said earlier i i generally like daniel lee's work he ain't choi hawk and and so and that's the problem is he is trying to kind of replicate Choi Hawk here. Uh, and I, I don't think it entirely works. It's not 
it's not a deal breaker for me though is the i guess the best way i could say it i think his earlier movie uh what price survival if you haven't seen that then it's a good watch it's also quite loose and more modern with its cutting despite it being a, a martial arts world but his uh, his style really worked for for the mood of that piece uh, really well actually and that's him that that's more personal so, so I think uh, he's got instincts, even if they don't uh, pan out uh, superbly each time. I, I don't know if this comes from the comic book uh, that that this world has, you know, quite elevated violence, but also decadence and a sense of a macabre and sleaze. <laughs> you know, via Anthony Wong's character, you certainly get that. It might not be the greatest comic book world, but it's a, it's certainly a different world for a Hong Kong action piece. You know, where they they have their action know how in place here, but they place it in this rather macabre uh, world. I didn't fully understand why Anthony Wong is keeping body parts of his uh, family with him in his lair. But he, he does. And uh, if you want someone to go big and sell a very odd character, Lao Chi Wan doesn't seem to bother because um, I think he knows that world or knows King Kao, the character, quite well. That That's what he does. But... Um, you you bring in some someone like Anthony Wong, and uh, you're gonna get um, you're gonna get the audiences noticing him. There's a great bit only in the Taiwanese version where Lao Ching Wan and him are meeting in this scene, and they're doing the hand gestures towards each other. And at the end of it, there's a long silence, and Anthony Wong goes, "Hello," you know, he he you know he greets uh, Lao Ching Wan, and I thought that was like, <laughs> okay, cool. I mean, it's Anthony. I, I can watch him uh, uh, jazz up scenes like that and ham it up like that because that that's how good of an actor he is. You know, it doesn't matter to you that this world is has such like exaggerated violence. Like, uh, does that matter for you in terms of enjoying the film, or do you think it actually goes a little bit too too over the top with um, the the amount of bloodshed that we do get here? I don't think it goes too much over the top. I mean, I don't know. Again. People who aren't familiar with 80s and 90s Hong Kong cinema, I don't know how they would feel about it. For me, it, it kind of felt like a warm blanket, honestly, uh, you know, especially once Anthony Wong showed up. I will say, holy crap, of all the things that are bad in the dub, the voice that they did to dub Anthony Wong might actually be the worst. It's borderline like homophobic. It's it's absolutely terrible. Is he, is he King Cow or do they give him a, a, a Western name in that one for, for the drug dealer that he is? They give him a Western name, but I can't remember what it is because uh, I was so blown away by the voice that they were using. And and of course, you know, you don't get the, the hand signals and, and stuff. But I, no, I'm with you. I mean, first of all, anytime Anthony Wong shows up, it's a treat, right? I love Anthony Wong. Talking about someone who just worked and so, sometimes it was mainly to make a living. I have a family. And at the end of the 90s, he had hospital bills as well because he was ill at one point. So. And he comes in in this and just does exactly what you want Anthony Wong to do, right? He shows up for 10 minutes and he's brilliant. Uh, and and I love that he and Lao Ching Wan have such a – there's so much backstory to those characters that isn't in the movie. But they're so good at what they do that you still get it. Anyway, you know, you you see them interact and you're like, oh, these are there's like a whole other movie that's not Black Mask about Lao Ching Wan trying to 
track down and and get you know bust king cow there's there's just like organized crime and triad bureau too is <laughs> he's watching long trying to bust uh, a king cow right and uh yeah and uh it's it's color it's the greatest color in the movie actually that that doesn't last um for too long but it certainly makes an impression uh, around this time we also get a, a fair few um big uh, action set pieces involving construction site machinery there's some gunplay mayhem that follows uh, which fits this universe just fine i wouldn't say i was terribly impressed by the young Ping staging or the action team staging of all of this it's big they're using such machinery and the gunplay mayhem uh, crafts violence and it's uh, loud and noticeable but I think a little bit of Danny Lever director is getting imposed on on Yumo Ping the action director because the clarity isn't what it needs to be at all times. It sort of falls. Uh, I, I mentioned it before about like the '90s style of quicker cutting and um, shorter shots, but creativity within them, especially in you know Lost Here in China or other type of uh, waifu movies, Th- that worked for me. This one is more modern. It gets by, especially working with a big construction site, uh, machinery and violence. But uh, I wouldn't say it's uh, exemplary as such. But uh, I, I, my warm blanket <laughs> within all this was that, well, it's it's this elevated universe that isn't a common sight for Hong Kong movies. I'm fine with it. And um, and it, it adds a little bit of different... Uh, action considering Yu Ping is here. I mean, we, we get martial arts, yes, but uh, he's called to stage some other stuff, I'm, I'm sure, uh, or, or his action team is asked to stage other things uh, that uh, are not martial arts oriented. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't blame people for saying that, uh, you know, I, I, that, that they can't extract a terrible amount of highlight action out of this. Um, and and I'm finding that uh, maybe it's this sequence that is one of the better ones. Uh, and the end fight, the actual martial arts fight, is not one of the better ones, to be honest. Uh, but it all it all it all sort of generally works well. Uh, Award worthy, it is not though. No, I I agree. You know, I mean, I think one of the things that would be fair to say about this movie is that this is not their best work. Like, there's there's nobody involved that we can say this is their best work. I actually think for me, the best action scene doesn't even really involve Jet Li. I think that for me, the standout action scene is actually the hospital. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, with the with, with the Westerners and the zombie killer and all of that. Yeah. And and then Francois Yip and, and Lao Ching Wan. Uh, I think their their fight scene in that hospital room is is pretty cool. You know, the way he's got to keep using various parts of the the hospital like the mattress and stuff like that to keep from from getting killed by her and stuff but i don't think there's any particular you know i i've watched this i watched this twice for this because i watched the taiwan and then the artisan version and i still don't really feel like there is an action scene that that leaves a lingering memory for me i mostly remember when the one zombie 701 member gets shot in the head twice and how cool the squibs on his forehead looked more than i remember any of the actual fighting or action scenes or anything like that yeah probably my, my, my favorite bit because i simply forgot the hospital scene but my favorite bit is later in that same scene where the westerners zombie killers that actually play 
policemen that, that they say, oh my god, our colleagues are on fire, put them out, and it's, uh, it's the zombie killers, because they, they can do that. Uh, one of them spins on the floor uh, with an automatic machine gun and takes out half a dozen or whatever uh, SWAT team members or police officers in that scene, and that chaos made sense to me in, in that scene, and um, it, it has a little uh, color to the movie that uh, oh, this exists as well. In, in this universe, and therefore this exists in this movie. It isn't just a, uh, a you know cops versus drug smugglers type of film. No, no, not with the super soldiers. And uh, obviously the super soldiers are led by Patrick uh, uh, Lung's character, who uh, has got a great hair and makeup design. I really like that, uh, you know, with, with, the, with the long hair and uh, the orange-tinted glasses. He's uh, draining is uh, soldier's blood in this filthy underground lair or sewer, really, and there's welding in the sewer as well. So in that same scene, you have sparks literally <laughs> adding to the scene, adding color and light to the scene. It's really shameless, but it works uh, very well. And at one point, he sits on a throne with a cross as well. So they're amping his vision, and I suppose that is something you can argue would fit a comic book uh, villain you know you need to uh, make it leap off the page i suppose and that's how you design that so so another visual highlight for me anyway would be uh patrick uh patrick lung's um character yeah no absolutely well and i do want to give a, a a little bit of love to to francoise yep because i think she cuts a a very impressive she makes a very impressive sort of femme fatale mm-hmm. in this movie she she handles herself well in the action scenes. They give her a dozen different wigs to wear, which is cool because it changes up her look. Very a very comic booky thing. Um, and unfortunately, actually, she has far better chemistry with Jet Li than Karen Mock does. Yeah, their character have an emotional uh, backstory, so that's how the the story plays out. That uh, they're on different sides uh, of uh, they have different motivations than they are on different sides and will their past uh, emotional connection uh, matter uh, when uh, when everything's on the line it's that kind of script it, again not refined but in the case of those two very much functional yeah yeah they work they work well together you know everything for the most part in this movie it functions. It works. Patrick Lung isn't necessarily the most impressive villain I've ever seen in a Hong Kong movie, but he looks the part. Like you said, he sits in the throne and that last fight is good enough. It's not going to blow you away, but it's satisfying. I mean, it's got a couple of elements of uh of uh, danger and uh, elevated challenge at one point. Uh, Jet Li's character is in a room with poisonous gas, so uh, the movie is chaotic in that regard, uh, too. So there's a, little, a few little elements there to attach to Robert and them just squaring off. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's the thing I will say about this movie, I guess, overall, is it's satisfying. You know, you watch this movie and it's not the best. Nobody involved is doing their best work. The fights aren't the best. The action's not the best. But you get done with it and you still feel like it's like it's it's a very McDonald's kind of movie. You're satisfied. You're probably going to be hungry again in a couple of hours, but it tastes good going down. And that's that's really the best way I can describe Black Mask is it. It's, Just, very, it's very fair. And um, it's um, if we if it had been scrubbed and uh sanitized i don't think i would have uh 
been as uh, happy because those more uh, adult-oriented elements uh, carried me uh, through this uh, back in the day and still, as a matter of fact. So, uh, and, and, and also technically, in terms of uh, the special effects, it's okay for 1996. Clearly, the, a couple of the scenes involving explosions are separate elements. The actors aren't running away from actual explosions. But it's 1996. It looks fine. And uh, a couple of the I Come In Peace CD Arsenal uh, shots of, um, of, <laughs> of Jet Li's character. Those shots of this CDs going through the air on the, in the air uh, on the, en route to their victims. It looks okay. And... Uh, it might be super hokey, as a matter of fact, but I'm a kid of the 90s. I grew up on this stuff, and uh, CDs were a viable weaponry in the 90s, kids. <laughs> Ranging from me, I come in peace, aka Dark Angel, to this. Absolutely, absolutely. You could 100% kill somebody with a CD. That was, uh, that was just a thing we did in the 90s with kids just throwing CDs at one another left and right. I do want to talk about the ridiculousness of... This idea that if you sever somebody's ability to feel pain, they become uns- like just because you can't feel pain doesn't mean your bones and muscles and tendons don't still get destroyed. But, <laughs> yes. you know, but I'm also a diehard fan of Dark Man, which uses the same conceit. And so I just go with that comic. I mean, that's such a comic book setup, right? It's just hand waved this science we've cut off their ability to feel pain and now they're unstoppable killing machines. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they get that exposure, um, uh, exposition rather done at the start of the movie, establish it well, uh, well enough or rather quick, quick enough. And then they're off and running. So it's more like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that works. Oh, library comedy. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, you, you, they don't stop for us to sort of go, Hmm. And, ponder this for, for for the next reel or anything no they're, they're often running so and 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 i'm the most stupid viewer out there so i, I wouldn't notice any flaw in the plan to to me it was sort of like yeah they 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 worked this out they, this is foolproof scientifically but what if they cut their heads off will that <laughs> what happens then? yep yep absolutely it, it, it works it works i just always chuckle when i see it um but i yeah no it works it's a it, it is a comic book movie and it fills it's 1996 it's dated but it fills as such it fills appropriate very much so and uh I, I, maybe i liked it more back in the day but i still found this to be an enjoyable uh, enjoyable watch um and i guess uh the, the reason why the fan community doesn't come out in droves and put down this movie is because there are more fans of this than there are of Black Mask 2. So I guess that's why, because uh, people, I think, are quick to um, jump at Black Mask 2 versus Black Mask 1. Yeah, I was actually thinking when you were talking about the special effects in this, I was like, oh, just wait. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, that's... um, that's a topic that's going to be relevant here. So before I do the availability, uh, let me throw over to you if you have any other notes you want to share about Black Mask. No, I think uh, get the get the Taiwanese cut if you can. Um, the artisan cut, if it's the only way you can see the movie, then I still think it's worth it just because I do think Black Mask is worth seeing. But just know that the dub is uh, staggeringly awful. 
and, and it's not in the fun way that some bad dubs are like you can't even ironically enjoy the dub but i still think there's enough in black mask that it makes worth makes it worth it if that's the only way you can watch it but i anyway you slice it check out black mask it's it's fun it's good it's not gonna blow your mind but it's good and as for availability, uh, the situation in terms of availability has been quite rectified for Black Mask on, on Blu-ray, for instance. Uh, in Hong Kong, it's now reportedly on Blu-ray uncut in terms of the gore is reinstated, but there's no Taiwanese footage added to that uh, version. Uh, and in Germany, there is uh, a, an English-friendly option on Blu-ray that gathers... Uh, it's, it, it, there are a few different versions of it, but I'll, I'll try and explain. Uh, the full... Four disc version in Germany that's English subtitle and all of that gathers the uncut Hong Kong version, the Taiwanese extended version, meaning the body of uh, the main body of the movie is the is the high definition film, but it has standard definition inserts because the Taiwanese movie footage uh, doesn't exist in any other version uh, currently. So uh, the the extra scenes with Karen Mock and so forth, that's uh, from a different source. But uh, hey, you, you'll get a full idea of uh, what is uh, extended in the Taiwanese version when you watch it that way. Same edition from Germany has the international version. Uh, uh, and I think... That that means it was the U.S. cut that that's on there as well, and a fourth cut assembled by the label TVP that that is reported as being the shorter German version, but with more nudity and violence. So they they, they provided a package for you all across four discs. I got the two disc Blu-ray reissue that only has the uncut Hong Kong version and the extended Taiwanese version. But for me, that's all I need because I really had no interest in collecting the artisan version and uh, if i wanted to see that i could just hit, hit that up on digital to be honest and uh, that, that that fourth cut uh, that german version it, it really uh, didn't seem to be needed for me personally maybe more suited for uh, the german-speaking uh, market um, it's quite pricey regardless of how you slice it uh, the two-disc version was quite pricey the four-disc version is uh, not available as such anymore if so it's quite uh, it's quite highly priced, so try and get it because uh, it's a neat way to um, to watch it. But um, they didn't do a full million units out there type of uh, run. But um, uh, the key thing is it's the, it, that it's out there, either via Hong Kong or if you want to catch the artisan version that is on Blu-ray and surely on digital, uh, pretty much everywhere you uh, you turn. Uh, it was quite amusing. Uh, I was scanning the. Um, the end credits of uh, the US version because they included that on the Blu-ray because the the, the end credits are well, well one they're different and they add credits for the persons who assembled the um, the uh, talent and uh, the audio version of uh, the Black Mask US version but it also revealed to me that they deal with the photograph gag differently in the US version I tried if I if I understood correctly they made it uh, they tried to make sense of it in the US version. Uh, in the original version, they, they take a photograph of each other and then it's black mask and they're all in glasses for some reason. What? Magic camera. And in the US version, it's simply the photograph they took of themselves. No magic camera or anything. So, so, so I don't know if that plays better or if it's just like, come on, keep the fun. Keep the fun of the Hong Kong version. Yeah, it, it doesn't. And they do. There are a couple other things they do. They shift some scenes around in the artisan cut to uh, because in the Hong Kong and the Taiwanese cut, there's quite a bit of flashbacks. 
and they shift most of those to the front of the movie to try and make it make a little more sense. And I just found it. I actually found by doing a lot of that, it actually made it make less sense uh, because you're just kind of going from chopped scene to chopped scene with no real flow. Whereas I feel like the Hong Kong and the Taiwanese versions, magic cameras notwithstanding, they flow better. Everything just kind of flows together a little better. And now that I think of it, uh, even though it might have cost them money, but they really had a chance to keep a lot of the main cast on there to deliver their English dialogue. As you said, Jet would have been able to do that. And you're in a booth and you can do retakes and retakes until you get the pronunciation right. Karen Mock would have been able to do that. She was educated or brought up in England. So it's no problem there. Francois Yip, I believe, is Canadian. She's Canadian. She speaks fluent English. So, so, like, there would have been a great chance that to, so, to do the Jackie Chan thing of bringing in Jackie, in the case of Supercop, bring in Michelle Yeoh, and have it at least, you know, at least it's them. But uh, it's a shame. I mean, uh, they made money, but maybe they didn't have money to uh, throw around as they were uh, preparing the version. Uh, artisan, that is. Yeah, I mean, Artisan, you know, they're the studio that the Blair Witch Project built. They're, they're, they were an unbelievably low-budget studio. And so I just don't think they had the money. I don't even think they had the money to hire good, you know, because I've watched a lot of dubbed Hong Kong movies. I, I I need to track down and find the guy's name, who he is. But I remember there was this one Australian voiceover actor who always seemed to do Chow Yun Fat dubbing. And he was actually really good at it. You know, I really I mean, it, it was weird because I knew what Chow Yun Fat sounded like, but he was really good at it. They didn't even hire that guy. Right. They didn't hire anybody on this. They literally went to like a local community theater, I feel like, and just paid people 50 bucks to come and spend an hour recording dialogue. 60 million US dollars later, someone walked away happily. Probably not. The, probably not those guys and gals. No, not them. Absolutely. Uh, well, 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 uh, me and Michael will be back for another episode of Podcast on Fire because uh, here's the Scott Atkins podcast guy. So... Why aren't you talking Black Mask 2? Well, we're gonna. Next episode. Because that, that features indeed the, the subject of his uh, podcast. It's called Atkins in AM. Would you say it's his most uh, extravagant role visually? Uh, he's nearly unrecognizable, to be honest. Or, or has he done a sort of deep makeup dive in other roles where he's been uh, unrecognizable? It's the only one where he's bald. So I'm going to go ahead and say that it's it's probably I mean, I guess arguably X-Men Origins Wolverine, where his mouth is sealed shut and he's bald in that, too, because he's supposed to look like Ryan Reynolds. Uh, that might be his most visually extravagant. But this is up there. And he's rocking the steampunk goggles, which I'm still trying to source the correct versions because I will cosplay as him <laughs> at some point, uh, in this movie. So, uh, yeah, this one's going to be. In, I'm really excited to talk to you about this one. I don't remember what I did an hour ago. So I don't remember what Black Mask 2 was like 10 years ago. <laughs> right? I have a review. I can read it. Okay, that's what I thought. But I've changed my mind frequently on movies. Uh, as I get older, I'm more tolerant about movies that I, uh, that I did, disliked in the past. But I do remember this. I did not dislike Black Mask 2. And I remember it wasn't liked at all. Not at all. And I thought like, yeah, this is all right. 
<laughs> it was sort of that simple, but uh, I'm looking forward to do a deep dive on it because uh, uh, the more I grow older, the more I'm, uh, like like uh, the more happy I become whenever you get a Choi Hak on his crazy pills type of uh, visual sense in a movie, and 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 that means producer of this one, listeners. Choi Hak, he directed Black Mask too. So uh, I do, I, uh, I'm going to watch it for the kooky shots. And believe it or not, Michael, that's gonna, that, that can carry me a long time. Like, <laughs> no one does things like that except Choi Hak. Marvelous. It, it, somebody on Twitter watched it and they're like, did they even have a script? And I loved, thanks to Scott, being able to respond to them and go, no. They just started filming the movie. It's a Hong Kong movie, <laughs> albeit in English, but but why would I have a script? It's a Hong Kong movie. Yep, exactly. So I'm I'm very excited to get into it. It'll also be fun too. Not not that I want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's like watching it in 2001 when it came out and seeing Andy on then versus knowing who Andy on has turned into now. You know, there's there's some interesting things I think in there watching it 20 years later than maybe when it first came out. Yeah, maybe back then, I mean, this is all fear, a big old theory. Maybe there was a great enough fan base for Black Mask that simply could not stand on its, uh, uh, with it, because Jet wasn't there, and it was so different, and maybe in some people's eyes, so daft. The wrestlers, Tracy Lords, and what's going on here? everything's changed everything's strange so disapproval disapproval and then 20 years go by i didn't have eyes for these aspects 20 years ago because they were colored by disappointment that it wasn't a choi hak jet lee movie again who knows but uh, there is a chance that black mask was uh, thought of enough that um, any change like this would get an an automatic uh, disapproval absolutely and I, i think it'll just i think it'll be really fun for you and i to just dig into it We'll do that next uh, episode, but uh, in the meantime, this has been the podcast, uh, the, the Podcast on Fire, an episode of Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. For all your Podcast on Fire Network needs, including relevant links for this episode and our social media links, check uh, check out the show post on the website, podcastonfire.com, or uh, links are always on there permanently. Anyway, so uh, I'll uh, throw over to you, Michael, as the honorary co-host co-producer of course because you contributed to the episode greatly throw out the plug for uh, for your podcast and uh, where people can find it yeah you can find adkins undisputed anywhere you find podcasts itunes stitcher spotify all of that you can follow uh, me on twitter personally at hibachi justice and on letterbox easiest way to find all of it is to just go to linktree slash adkins undisputed pod and uh, like I said, be on the lookout at the time we're recording. We are in the middle of it, but it will be probably completed by the time this is done. Me and uh, Mr. Adkins himself declaring the greatest action star of all time. And he is Michael Wong. Thank you very much. That's us signing off now. Just kidding. <laughs> I actually feel very bad I did not bring up Michael Wong. Uh, we did a whole episode on honorable mentions, people who didn't make the list. There were several people. Jet Li uh, was brought up, uh, Donnie Yen, uh but uh, I did not bring up Michael Wong. Wong gifts, I'm sure, is devastated and very, very upset at me. But I mean, you're talking, you're talking greatest action star. If you were to do it properly, 
uh, you would do an episode on greatest stars of all time and then you would only have one option that would be michael wong and then it's over podcast series done the other thing is is you can't codify the airways of love it just flows through all of us there is no list that can contain michael wong yeah greatest is way too sort of um subtle and underplayed yeah no there is no list that can contain him it's like rate rank your greatest gods you don't they're just (laughs) he just eats that's all it boils down to that is truth all right uh we'll link to your endeavors and some uh, specific episodes of course on uh, the likes of uh, black mask and uh, for listeners who want to get a primer uh, uh, when you did black black mask 2 too because it's so early in his career was that the time uh, where you also had him provide uh, extra commentary, recording, and uh, trivia about the production? Did you have him on for Black Mask 2 in that regard? I did not. He did not join the show until a few episodes later. Uh, but what I did do is I did still ask him about all those movies. So you can listen to the Black Mask 2 episode where uh, my good friend Rob Dean of Neon Splatter and I do a deep dive on the movie. And then uh, about 15, 20 episodes later, there is another episode where I did a bonus release of my conversations with Scott involving uh, Accidental Spy, Black Mass 2, and Special Forces. And so you can hear his take on on all of those uh, extreme challenges in there as well. Uh, you can hear his take on working on all those movies and working in Hong Kong and, and working on Black Mask 2. And, uh, you know, I will say he has very fond, fond memories of working on that movie, regardless of what people may think about the movie he definitely had a good time working on black mass too and he's front and center in uh, at least the hong kong poster so uh, that's always something you know uh, as it played um, as it played uh, over there uh, we'll get into it uh, in some further details in uh, uh, the next episode with you and i uh, covering that uh, that specific uh, movie but in the meantime let's uh, finish this one off thank you very much for agreeing to come on though this was a very very enjoyable uh, discussion michael and uh thank you for bringing it and uh bringing your uh, knowledge as well and uh keep on uh you know don't sit on any creative instincts uh in the future regardless of what you come up with after the atkins undisputed run is uh, is over i've already got i got i got two things ready to get started as soon as i'm i'm done with this so no i'm gonna i'm gonna keep it on going people are gonna People are going to be absolutely sick of listening to me talk about about actors. So uh, I will keep it going. Excellent. Well, th- thank you very much for joining again. So let's uh, let's sign off. I've been Kennedy, and with me was Michael Scott of Atkins Undisputed. So take us out, buddy. Thank you, Kenny. I really appreciate it. This was an absolute. I cannot describe. This was a dream come true. Thank you so much, man. You need to dream better. <laughs> <laughs>